0: As I mentioned, today is our our last part in this series of uh, encounters with Jesus, and we've been looking at various ways in which Jesus has encountered people throughout the Gospels and uh, trusting that we also are having such a profound (coughs) encounter with Jesus uh, as we continue on in this Christian journey. Let's just say a word of prayer before we look into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity, Lord, to study your word just to see a few things, Lord, uh, in the gospel today. And we pray, Lord, that the good news of Jesus would penetrate our hearts and would give us hope and help us, Lord, to see our failures in the light of your word and give us a dedication and commitment to follow you and to have an encounter with you. Bless this time, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we were, we've been studying some of these interesting encounters that people had with Jesus, and we studied one sad encounter that the rich young ruler had with Jesus sadly walking away. Uh, I hope and I pray that as we've been studying through these things and as we continue to live our Christian lives, that we would grow in deeper intimacy with the Lord and to be able to understand him more deeply and to feel his heart passionately. Uh, today, this last encounter that we're going to say. Now, there's so many others that we could study as well. There are many others, other times that Jesus uh, encountered people, and they had such a transformative experience, and others didn't have such a transformative experience. But today, we're going to study from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Colin read that portion of scripture. It's often known as Jesus' Jesus's encounter <coughs> with a woman with an alabaster box, uh, We say a woman with an alabaster box because we don't know her specific name, uh, in the story. We, we know this, we know the name of the person that invited Jesus to his home. His name was Simon, and he was a Pharisee. Um, and so this encounter is not actually just between two people, but we're gonna look at this encounter actually through the lens of these three people, okay? Of Jesus, Simon, who was the Pharisee, the owner of the house that invited Jesus to come, and also through this woman. Now, the woman doesn't say anything in the story. She just acts and responds. Simon thinks a lot more than he actually says, and Jesus, good thing he's the one that's talking the most, right? He gives us a little insight into what's actually happening here. Now, this encounter may have happened after a time that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and maybe Simon, being a ruler or a, a person of authority in the synagogue, maybe invited Jesus home for like a fellowship meal or something afterwards uh, into his house, and it could have been open for various people to come, and that's probably the reason why this woman was able maybe to come in uh, and also uh, be, at the, be in the area where Jesus was. Now, the Pharisees were religious people of the day they were people that we would say went to church read their bible prayed got involved in a life group you know served in some way at church they they were committed right they were part of uh, what was going on and they were religious people Um, but sadly as well these pharisees they also had a, a sense of a holier than thou attitude they also had a sense of pride, spiritual pride specifically, where they felt like they were better than others because of the religious uh, uh, things that they did, the spiritual things that they did. And so we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as this Pharisee Simon did, and maybe some other Pharisees that we read in the Word of God, right? And so we want to always have this understanding that we are sinners saved by God's grace, right? And have this uh understanding of humility. So I'm going to divide this story up into three sections, as you might see in your notes, in your, in your bulletin. And the first section that I'd like to look at is how Jesus breaks down barriers as Simon condemns, okay? So this woman that comes into Simon's house, she's a, in the Bible here, it says clearly she was an immoral woman. Maybe she was a prostitute, um, but she comes and kneels before Jesus. Jesus is probably relaxing at the table there. Now it's not like uh, more than likely it wasn 't like a table that we sit at with chairs and tables like that, but at that time in that culture, they would have probably sat on the floor and around a place where they would share food together and so this gave access to this woman to come to jesus 's feet and we see this woman is is crying and weeping, and she washes jesus 's feet with the tears right so there 's a lot of tears right when you want to wash someone 's feet it 's not you know a drop or two those feet were dirty as well too okay so right they're walking around in the dust with sandals and so she's crying and she's weeping at Jesus' feet and then she takes her hair which in that time and culture hair for a woman was a symbol of of honor and and respect and pride it was something very valuable and and esteemed to have long hair and so she takes her hair and she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with with her hair and then To top it off, the icing on the cake is that she comes with this, what's called an alabaster box of perfume, very expensive perfume, ointment. And what she does is she anoints Jesus's feet with that perfume. Luke 7, verse 37 and 38. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she k- kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them, right? Oh, on top of the, so see, I missed that little detail there. She also kissed Jesus' feet. Now, if this happened in your house, what would you think? You'd probably be a little bit alarmed, right? Yes, right? Like, if, if this woman just came into your house and she's crying and weeping and causing a ruckus and, you know, cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair and kissing his feet and everything, like, who is this lady, Right? Why is she here? And so maybe the natural response would be just a a sense of, like, what's going on? But Simon, he goes a little bit further, and he starts to actually condemn the woman in his heart, right? And starts to even look at Jesus with a little bit of of contempt, with a little bit of displeasure to say... If this guy was really a prophet, if this man, you know, who's he probably saw Jesus teaching in the temple, maybe he saw Jesus doing some miracles because Simon had a, a perception of Jesus of being a prophet, being a man of God, someone who could who could see things. It, it, in the Old Testament times, a person that was a prophet was somebody who had a, a little bit of a divination in him that he could sort of see into the future or see what was going to happen or, or understand a situation a little bit more than the regular people could understand. And so Simon thinking that Jesus uh, was a prophet, he probably thought like, shouldn't Jesus know what's happening? And that's what he says in verse 39. He says, if this man were a prophet, he looks like a prophet. Maybe he saw some miracles, saw some great things. He looks like a prophet. He should know that this woman that's touching him is, is a sinner. The irony in this whole story is that we get to hear Simon's thoughts because of Jesus. What Simon thought Jesus should be doing in reading the woman's thoughts, Jesus is actually doing to Simon. Can you see the irony in this? Simon is thinking all of these things. Jesus, you should know better than this. And he's thinking, man, this guy, Jesus, he can't read people's thoughts. He can't, you know, understand. If he's a prophet, he should understand about this woman. And all along, we get to understand that Jesus is seeing the thoughts of Simon and seeing the thoughts of the woman. And Simon is just going off on a tangent here. It's it's funny the way that pride works. It has a way of coming back and biting us. And that's what happened to Simon. Simon wanted to read into Simon wanted Jesus to read into the woman and see that she was an immoral woman, that she was a sinner, and therefore she should not be touching Jesus. But instead of doing that, Jesus actually reads into Simon and sees his contempt. And seeing his thoughts, Jesus continues on with an explanation. And Jesus gets Simon basically into a corner. As Simon was condemning, Jesus was breaking down barriers. As Simon was condemning this woman, and Simon had thoughts of contempt and displeasure at Jesus because he wasn't being the quote-unquote prophet he should be by understanding who this woman was living up to a certain standard that maybe the pharisees wanted and the religious people wanted instead of doing that jesus here is actually tearing down barriers and jesus is allowing this woman to to weep and cry and wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and kiss his feet and anoint his feet for the religious people of the day for the pharisees of the day and even sometimes for us, we don't want people like that in church. We don't want people like that associating with us. What if something like that were to happen here on a Sunday morning, right? What if I was seated here and all of a sudden, you know, someone came and they're crying and they're making a big ruckus and then you're going to think, Daniel, you're the pastor here. What are do you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? What if something out of the ordinary were to happen? What if something unusual were to happen? How would we react? See, the church is meant to be a hospital for sick people, not a spa for people to just come and relax and have a good time. Do you agree with me? It should be a place where anyone and everyone could come and find help. Jesus invites people from from all ethnicities, from all sexual backgrounds, from all prior lifestyles, from all criminal pasts, From all socioeconomic backgrounds, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus gives an invitation for anyone and everyone to come. And maybe this woman, hearing some of the teachings of Jesus in the synagogue and hearing some of the teachings of Jesus afterwards, she thought, I'm going to go to Jesus because I know I wouldn't be cast out. See, this encounter with Jesus was transformational for the woman, but I believe it's written in the scriptures to be transformational for us. That for us, we won't have this mindset like the Pharisees had, like Simon had, to say, no, 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 you have to do it this way. You have to have it like this. You Make sure it's done this way. Make sure it's done in that very order. Or if this person, you know, causes a ruckus, no, 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 we don't want that to happen. Not on Sunday morning, of course. See, do we look at with our eyes of contempt and, and criticism like Simon was doing, or do we looking at the past of what people have done or do we look with eyes that Jesus has looking at the future with hope, with assurance, with comfort I think this the stories here are written to open our eyes so that we could see that Jesus accepts people regardless of their situation and that he's open for all of us to come to him and that no one person is better or greater than the other person which we'll go on to see here See, James gives this example in James chapter 2. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes who is poor and dressed in filthy clothes, and let me add, maybe smells a little bit. Right? So those of you that are here last week, uh, I, I told a story at the end of, of this pastor who, who welcomed this man that was sturdy and stinky and smelly and embraced him. Well, h- how would we react? I asked myself, how would I react? Right? I don't know if I, I, I told, this, told you the story before, but when I was pastoring in Puerto Rico at one time, we had this man come into our, into our church and... When he came in, everybody knew he was there. It, he smelled, he lived on the streets, but he would come. And he would come and he would use the bathroom. And then he'd come and he'd sit in the service. And after a couple of weeks, I got some complaints from some people in the congregation. Do you know what the complaint was? Why are you allowing that man to use our bathroom? Do you understand that we all use this bathroom? And my heart broke my heart broke because that's not the heart of God. See here, James says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? James is pretty direct here. And in this story that we see this woman coming to Jesus and Jesus accepting her with open arms, it doesn't matter what kind of state or background or past people come. James also says in verse 9, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. See, we need to examine ourselves and see, are we in the position of Simon and looking with critical eyes and judging and saying, why is this woman here? Or are we looking at it with eyes of Jesus and saying, looking at at this woman with eyes of love and compassion and offering an opportunity to come and be fed, offering an opportunity to come and receive comfort at the feet of Jesus? See, Simon looked at things with a critical eye at the past how, how sinful, how, how different this woman was from, from him. But Jesus looks at people with love and grace and hope that somehow through the transforming work and power of God, that there is hope for a different future. See Romans two says that God does not show favoritism. So, so here's the question. How do we look at people? Remember, we're looking at this encounter through a few different lenses. We're, we're seeing it through the eyes of Simon. We're seeing it through the eyes of Jesus. We're seeing it through the eyes of, of the woman in a moment as well. And we're, we're looking at this and, and seeing, well, where do I fall in into this category? Am, am I acting like Simon in my interactions with people, whether it's inside a church or outside of church? Am I acting like this this woman where I'm expressing such great love for Jesus and what he's done for me? Or am I acting like Jesus in accepting others and helping others to come and experience God's love and grace? See, if Jesus wasn't around and Simon met this woman, I'm pretty sure the encounter would have ended differently. But because Jesus was around, this woman's encounter led to To love and forgiveness and hope and change and and a transformed life. Now, remember, love and grace doesn't mean that you stay the way that you are. No, she received salvation and at the end there was hope given to her. And when we come to Jesus, it's not to, we come to Jesus just as we are, but it's because Jesus wants to do a work of change and transformation in our life. Right? Jesus gives her hope that she doesn't need to continue in her sinful ways. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 14 says, since God chose you to be holy people, he loves. You must clothe yourself with tender hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So, let's seek to be like Jesus in this encounter, not like Simon. Let's not look at the things outwardly, but look at the things with eyes of hope, just as Jesus did. This month, this month of February is known as Black History Month, and I like to just talk a little bit about that to say a little bit of, of what, uh, sometimes in, in past, things that have gone really badly, but God offers hope. One of the things that I was reminded of as I was, as I was preparing this was about the Azusa Street revivals because at the Azusa Street revivals that happened in the 1900s in, in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, it happened through a black man who in many ways was despised and rejected and cast out. His name was William Seymour. And, that revival that started there in Azusa Street in the early 1900s spread throughout the world as the Spirit of God was poured out in a way that had not been seen since the early church. See, Seymour faced racism throughout his life. Even in the Bible school that he studied, he had to sit outside the classroom and just listen in from through the window because he wasn't allowed to even sit in the classroom with the other white students. That's the kind of uh, culture and the kind of society that he had grown up in. And when he came to Los Angeles, it was a time when the city was very ethnically diverse. And Seymour started these small gatherings, and the Holy Spirit all of a sudden was poured out and and began to move that caused an amazing integration of the races and of even denominational integration where people were not were no longer dividing themselves by by race and color and ethnicity uh, or even by denomination. But they started to gather as the Holy Spirit started to move and unite people together as one. On April 9th, 1906, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the, a small group of people and, and more and more people started to come and so they had to move to a new place, which is Azusa Street. All these external divisions and, and lines were dissolved. There was no rich or poor, male or female, black or white, but they all freely entered into the presence of God as the Holy Spirit started to move and make them all one body in Christ. And given the racial segregation laws At that time, having an African-American man as a pastor, both for blacks and whites in the same congregation, was radical and unheard of. But it was God's spirit doing a work. It wasn't just the congregation that saw these barriers coming down, but also in leadership, they saw barriers being broken. We can say that was probably the birthplace of the multi-ethnic congregation, And I'm so blessed that we are here at Unionville Alliance Church and we are blessed to have a multitude of ethnicities, of backgrounds, of age groups, of cultures and experiences and that all adds to the beautiful experience that we enjoy as the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful experience because it's a beautiful picture of heaven, of where all nations and tongues and languages and tribes and people are all going to worship God together. And we get a little bit of a taste of that even here. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? That we can worship, to God, to worship God together in one spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to unite us. And the second part of this story is how Jesus tells this parable. Jesus is a, is a person that teaches by parables, and he tells a small little parable that brings some light to the current situation that's happening. See, Jesus tells a, a parable about about two people who had, were loaned money, one about 500 pieces of, of money, another 50 pieces, and they couldn't repay that debt, and so the, the man forgives, the lender forgives them both. And Jesus asks Simon, now, Jesus tells this parable because Jesus is understanding Simon's thoughts. He's understanding what Simon is thinking and how he's sort of condemning and judging this woman, and, and Jesus as well. And so he tells this We don't know the end of the story here, actually. We don't know what Simon's final response to this is. And so at the end, I'm hoping Simon had a change of attitude. At the end, I'm hoping, because it's not really written, it says what sort of the people at the table thought at the end, but it doesn't say specifically what Simon thought and how he reacted. But I'm hoping that because Simon had enough of a heart to say, Jesus, come to my house, that after Jesus corrected Simon and told this parable, that I'm hoping that Simon at the end also changed. But... Simon, Jesus asked the question, so who, who's going to love the lender more, the one that was forgiven 500 or the one that was forgiven 50? And Simon says, well, the one that was forgiven 500, right? For example, if you if you had a car loan and you had a mortgage, right? Or if one person had a car loan and another person had a mortgage and both were forgiven, who do you think is going to be more grateful? The mortgage, right? I mean, unless you have a car that's like three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $400,000, i am just talking like, you know, a Honda Civic here compared to, you know, a house in Markham, okay? So in a similar situation, see, Jesus in this story, after he tells this parable, then he points out to Simon three things that maybe Simon could have done. Now, scholars are a debate whether it was really 100% the custom of the time, but according to Jesus' words here, it was probably something that Simon could have done, but he didn't do. The first thing was that he didn't give Jesus any water to wash his feet. Now, they walked around in sandals, and at that time, people, when they would enter, in, enter houses, they would wash their feet because their feet were dirty from walking around in the dust and walking with sandals. But Jesus didn't get that. Jesus said that he wasn't greeted with a kiss, but the woman kept kissing his feet. Simon didn't give him a kiss as he entered. And Simon didn't give him any olive oil to anoint his head, whereas the woman anointed his feet with that perfume. So what is the Lord trying to teach uh, Simon here? I think there's, there's three things here. Number one, the first thing is that faith is displayed through the action of love. See, Jesus counted all the ways in which the woman showed love. Washing his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing his feet with perfume. Simon didn't show any of those things, but this woman did. And I think we can see that faith is displayed through that action of love. And, and the challenge here is how are we displaying our faith today through an action of love? Galatians 5 and verse 6 says, what is impossible, what is important is faith expressing itself by in love. This is the important thing, faith expressing itself in love. If we have faith, how do we express our faith? This woman expressed her faith through love. That's why Jesus commended her, right? John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people and people came to him to be baptized, and he said, he he looked at them and he told them, he said, produce fruit in their lives that was reflective of the repentance that they were confessing. And so God is looking for that in our lives as well. James 2.17 says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Right? So there has to be some sort of expression. The second thing I think that's very important in understanding the story is that forgiveness comes before the action of love. Now, if you just read this story just as it is, you might think, okay, this woman came to Jesus. She Because we don't have a lot of pre-context to the story if you just read the story you might think okay this woman came to jesus and she poured out her love and did all of these things and because of that jesus forgave her sin but that's totally wrong it's the other way around jesus forgave her sin and because of the forgiveness she responds in love and that's why i believe jesus tells this parable to put put the story in order right that Jesus, we don't know exactly what happened before, but it seems like she might've had some sort of encounter, but Jesus looked into the depth of her heart and she was already forgiven. Now, we'll get to this at the end. When Jesus says at the end, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. It was just an affirmation of what she had already experienced. See, we don't do good works in order to be saved, but we're saved in order to do good works. And that's why in this parable, it says, one was forgiven 500, another was forgiven 50. 50. And then after they were forgiven, they loved. Right? It wasn't before. That's why in Luke, 4 verse, Luke 7, verse 47, it says, I tell you her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. Then it says, so she has shown me much love. See, her sins were forgiven then, so therefore she has shown me so much love. See, we don't know exactly what happened, but Jesus sees into this woman's heart. His statement of forgiveness at the end is just a confirmation of what she had already felt, what she had already received, and because of what she had felt, because of what she had received, there was an outpouring of love, right? Maybe she heard Jesus preach in the synagogue. Maybe she was a, a recipient of one of Jesus's miracles. We don't know, but she was acting in response to forgiveness, not trying to earn forgiveness. And that's important to understand in the story. She was acting in response to forgiveness. And the parable makes that clear, not trying to earn forgiveness. And the last thing I think in this portion is that Jesus uses comparison to condemn comparison. See, there are times when the Pharisees try to come to Jesus and try to trap him and try to, try to respond to, ask him a question, and Jesus responds to them with another question. See, this Pharisee, Simon, he was was proud and self-righteous and accusatory in his thoughts about the woman and even about Jesus. And and he thought that he was better than the woman. But Jesus turns the table on the Pharisee. Jesus turns the table on this whole thing. He, He used the parable to compare when two people with debts are actually forgiven and how the woman's actions were actually exalted more than the Pharisee's. See, in some way or form, Jesus is trying to say, okay, if you're, if you, Simon, are going to compare yourself to this woman, let me show you a real heart comparison. Right? So Simon's here. He's just looking at the outward and he's thinking, I'm so much better. This woman is immoral. This woman is a sinner. How? And he's having all of these thoughts. Jesus seeing this comparison that Simon is making with this woman says, hold on, Simon. I'm going to tell you this parable and I'm turning the tables on you. If you think you're going to compare yourself with this woman, let me tell you the real comparison. The real comparison is that this woman loves way more than you. The real comparison, if you if you want to compare, Simon, if you want to go, Jesus is like, okay, you want to compare, Simon? I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you here on a comparison. If you think that you're much better than this woman, I'm going to tell you what the real comparison is. I'm going to look into your heart and I'm going to say, this woman loves so much because she weeps and washes my feet with her tears. Where's the water that you gave me, Simon? She wipes my feet with her hair. Where's the cloth that you gave me, Simon? She kisses my feet, my dirty feet. She's kissing. Where are the kisses that you were supposed to give me, Simon? She anoints my feet with expensive perfume. Simon, where is the olive oil that you should have given me? Simon, you want to compare yourself with this woman and you think you're all holy and righteous and upright and this woman is a sinner? Hold on, wait a minute, Simon. I'm going to look through all of these externalities and I'm going to look right into the heart and I'm going to see, Simon, this is what your heart is like and this is what this woman's heart is like. And Simon, you are wanting badly. And so we have to be careful because we can fall into the same trap as simon and start comparing ourselves with other people have you ever done that before i have i've failed and we start looking just at the external things look at that person that's a real terrible sinner look at that person that person's a real terrible sinner and jesus comes along and says well let's remove all these externalities and let's look at the heart and he'll look at that and he'll say daniel you are way worse daniel do you see the pride in your life daniel do you see the so many ways that you haven't shown love and this other person who you think you're way better than daniel I, you got something else coming to you daniel second corinthians 10 and verse 12 tells us we wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are but they're only comparing themselves with each other using themselves as a standard of measure and, and here the apostle says how ignorant see if we could only see through the eyes of jesus simon is making this comparison just looking at his eye through his eyes right simon is saying oh look i'm a pharisee i'm a ruler in the synagogue i'm doing so many great things and then he's seeing this woman who's an immoral woman and probably committing so many sins and he's just looking through there and jesus here says how ignorant simon i'm gonna pull apart all of these other things and see simon this is really what your heart looks like and then he looks at the woman and he says look at how this woman expressed love and it's totally two different things. See, the Pharisee Simon, he, he, he had a love, but it didn't appreciate the depth of forgiveness like the woman did because he thought he was better than others. We, we, need a, we need to be careful of this. A true and deep and profound encounter with Jesus will reveal our sinfulness and create an unending gratitude for the Lord. Now, we don't know how Simon responds ultimately to this, so I'm still holding out hope that Simon changed at the end. The last thing here is that Jesus forgives as the woman is given hope. The statement of forgiveness at the end of this encounter, as I mentioned before, is just an affirmation and a confirmation of what the woman has already felt in her heart, right? Right? See, the woman has already experienced this forgiveness, and because of this forgiveness, there's an outpouring and an expression of love. So, so why does Jesus make this statement of forgiveness? I think he actually makes this statement of forgiveness, not so much for the woman, because she's already experienced this, and the outpouring of love shows that she's experienced this. The parable sets the, the course of events in order. I think Jesus really made this statement for the sake of the Pharisee and for others at the table. See, at the beginning, Simon thought Jesus was a prophet and invited him to his house. But then Jesus makes a statement that says, woman, your sins are forgiven. All of a sudden, Jesus moves from the level of prophet. See, Jesus started at the level of prophet. Then in Simon's eyes, where did Jesus go? Down here. What kind of prophet is this? And then Jesus makes his radical statement and says, woman, your sins are forgiven. And where does Jesus go now? All the way up now to divinity. Because who can forgive sins but? But God. Luke 7, verse 49 says, the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? See, forgiveness of sins was was equated with divinity. Because only God could forgive sins. Jesus was making a statement to the people at the table and to Simon about who he really was. But I think it was also a public affirmation and statement to help the woman change her reputation. See, at that time, in that culture, it was a very shame-driven culture. They looked at people because of what they had done and looked down on people. But I think here was a statement of hope, right? Right? Remember, the woman had already experienced forgiveness from Jesus, and that's why she responded in love. But this statement here, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, was a statement for her future. See, this was a public service announcement for everyone, right? Hello, everyone out there, because the common knowledge, as Simon stated from the beginning, she's an immoral woman. She's a sinner, Now, Jesus is making this public statement, your sins are forgiven. Not that she just experienced it then, she already had experienced that. But Jesus makes this public statement, woman, your sins are forgiven. As a public service announcement to everyone saying, this woman, you are cleansed, you are purified, you are sanctified, you are made whole. Woman, you have hope for the future. Doesn't Jesus do that for us? We can see our past and see the ways in which we have failed the Lord, see ways in which we have, we have uh, failed God in, in, in so many different ways. I think I'm going to turn off this mic. We see so many ways in which we, can, we fail God and we, uh, we have sinned against the Lord. And Jesus comes and makes a public declar- declaration and says, you are forgiven. Up until that point, whenever that woman went to this person's house, went to that public scene, went to this other house, what are people thinking? Immoral woman, stay away. It was a shame-driven culture. But now with this marvelous, wonderful statement from Jesus that says, woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now the declaration has been made by the King of Kings, by the Lord of Lords, by the God of all the universe to be able to say, woman, you are free. I am canceling everything in the past. I am giving you hope for the future. Don't look at everything. Simon, don't look at the past anymore. Simon, don't call this woman an immoral woman. Simon, don't start looking with a critical eye because I have forgiven. It was such a statement of affirmation. And this is what God wants to tell us as well. It's a declaration. I believe when Jesus said, woman, your sins are forgiven again, she would already experienced that. She was pouring out her love in response to the forgiveness. This was more of a declaration for everyone else to know. This woman is my daughter. She's my child. She is clean. She is whole. She is pure. She is sanctified. She has hope. Isn't that a wonderful thing that Jesus tells us as well? Isn't that an amazing thing that we can experience? See, the woman felt it and knew it in her heart. Jesus was making a public service announcement for everyone else. Hold on, guys. Do you all know? This is what's happened to this woman. So let's realize, let's not be like this Pharisee. Let's not be like Simon. But let's look to the future. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. This is what God has done for us. We have been made right in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what he has done. By faith God has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. See, that woman had right standing now. Maybe before she went hiding. Maybe she snuck in to the house at Jesus' feet and just crying and weeping because she didn't want maybe other people to see her house. She snuck in. But now she could walk out boldly and confidently like it says in this verse and says, I'm a child of God. I'm cleansed, I'm sanctified, I'm holy because of what Jesus has done for me. Worship team, you can come. I'm just going to close with a a story of of a man by the name of Jackie Robinson. Anyone heard of Jackie Robinson before? It's Black History Month, and so I thought I'll just close with the story of Jackie Robinson. There was a movie that was made uh, about him. You might have seen it. It was called 42, made in 2013. Robinson was the first black man to break the racial barrier in Major League Baseball on April 15, 1947. Sadly, though, the movie leaves out a huge chunk of Robinson's faith. See, Jackie Robinson was a man of faith and trust in God. He, he leaned on the Lord to help him in very difficult times. He had a habit of kneeling down and praying in the evenings as he trusted in God's word. He drew on his faith for inspiration and hope and was a deeply committed Christian. You can read the story called, the book called Jackie Robinson, A Spiritual Journey. There there are three very influential people in in his life, in his his, uh, religious life, in his spiritual journey. That was his mother, his pastor, Carl Downs, and the man who hired him to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. His name was Branch Rickey. See, what's interesting to note about this story of Jackie Robinson is not only Jackie Robinson's life, but also of this man who was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the GM, Branch Rickey, who signed Jackie Robinson. See, as Branch Rickey was thinking and, about signing Robinson, he realized that the great impact that it would have on baseball and society in general. But see, Branch Rickey was a man that he wanted to see beyond these barriers, like Jesus did for this woman. So he went, he went to a church called Plymouth Church, and so he went to see his pastor, Pastor Wendell F- uh, Feefield, Earlier in that century, that particular church that Branch Rickey was attending was very influential in the Underground Railroad and was used to save many slaves from slavery in the South and brought people to the northern states and to Canada. But when he walked into Pastor Feefield's office, he said, he told him, don't let me interrupt you. I can't talk to you. He's walking in the pastor's office and telling him this. Don't let me interrupt you. I can't talk to you. I just want to be here. Do you mind? For the next 45 minutes, he walked back and forth. He just paced, right? Just walked back and forth in the pastor's office. And he was just pacing back and forth because he had this big decision to make. And finally, after 45 minutes, he said, I got it. And Feefield answered, he said, got what, Branch? And he said, Wendell, I've decided to sign Jackie Robinson. And he said, this was, quote, he said, this was a decision so complex, so far-reaching, fraught with so many pitfalls, but filled with so much good. If it was right that I had, that I just had to work it out, if it was right, I just had to work it out in this room with you. I had to talk to God about it and be sure what he wanted me to do. I hope you don't mind. This story was unknown for many years until later on when they found what Fifiel's wife had written about the encounter. Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's wife, when she was told about the story, remembered Branch Rickey and said, he knew he was going to be pre- pretty well isolated in making this decision so that he needed all the strength he could summon up to be able to take that step. See, Branch Rickey was a person that he had the fear of God and he had the love of God and he knew he had to do what Jesus would want him to do and see beyond what society said and see beyond what society thought. And so he decided to sign Jackie Robinson. And the day before Jackie Robinson was going to play his first game as a Brooklyn Dodger in, the, in Major League Baseball, a well-known journalist came to Ricky and said to him the day before, he said, Ricky... Tomorrow, all hell is going to break loose. Right away, Ricky disagreed. And he said, I believe tomorrow, this is a quote, I believe tomorrow all heaven will rejoice. Isn't that how Jesus looks at things? Isn't that how Jesus sees things? Whether it's something ethnic or racial, whether it's, whether it's a past sinful life, whether it's a, a criminal past, whether it's a, a sexual orientation, whether whatever it is, Jesus calls people to himself. Jesus loves everyone. And he says, come to me. Because he wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants us to make us like Jesus. I believe Jesus is right here today, and we are standing in the presence of this amazing God who wants to change our lives. Let's sing to the Lord.